0: You are listening to the Venture Creative Podcast. At the intersection of artistry and commerce lies entrepreneurship, the space inhabited by the doers and the dreamers. Together, we'll unpack all things about business and its intrinsic creativity. I'm your host, Kurt Wobbenorst. Tommy, welcome to the pod. Thank you for coming. Um, Give us a little bit of background. Um, you own Auto Couture Motoring in Fairlawn. You've worn a lot of hats. You've gone up the ranks from uh, turning a wrench to running payroll on Mondays. <laughs> um, and there's a lot to unpack with your journey. And I'm really excited to uh, to do that with you today. So, um, give us a little background: who you are, what's you know where you're at in life, what are you doing? Uh, kind of thirty thousand foot view right now. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I'm really happy to be here, Kurt. Thank you for having me on. Um, uh, I think Auto Couture Motoring is, you know, has evolved into a pretty substantial, I don't know, landing place for people that are car enthusiasts that want cool stuff done. Um, you know, as a whole, um, right now, 39 years old, two kids, one both precocious um, <laughs> and challenging, as I'm sure you know, oh, yeah. uh, one seven year old and one just newly minted four year old. Uh, so I guess trying to balance that, you know, with being uh CEO, CFO, uh, herder in the asylum, so to say. Um, yeah, I like to say that it's the inmates running the asylum because a large part of what AutoCouture is, is, you know, a lot of individual is, is, geez, you know, uh, a lot of individual contributions that all make what it, you know, is today really great. It's a great you know, personification of everyone's individual contributions, whether it's hyper technical, you know, hyper visual, you know, very well organized, which, you know, I struggle with at times, you know. Um, the guys in the office have really, you know, drastically helped that, both Matt and Jeff. So, um, big scale of what we do, um, I think you know a little bit of it. Uh, we do basically any modifications to cars cool shit, not cool stuff, wild and sexy things, carbon fiber, suspensions, all types of things that you would do to a car in any way, shape, or form, um, you know, whether it be maintenance related or go fast related or racetrack related. So, specializing in BMWs is really how we got our start, specializing in BMWs, uh, being a BMW senior master or BMW master myself. Um, we kind of branched out from there, taking on the likes of other monikers that, uh, I think we can all be enthusiastic about a sure. McLaren in some aspects, a Porsche and others, Mercedes, you know, Lamborghini. It's got twin turbos on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you know, nice. tour and its and its craziness kind of does a bunch of things in a lot of spaces now. I guess it's a good way to say that.
0: Yeah, I, I love when I go in there <laughs> and your reputation. I've I've been driving a BMW since 2012. And the the reputation that AutoCutor had was always like I was going to be too poor to bring my car there. <laughs> that was that was the reputation. And I'm like I remember 2019 I bought my uh M4 and I was like, "Cool, I've got like a special car. It's a rare color." And I walk, and I'm still the poorest guy. The <laughs> but but I love that, and it's it's exciting. I think um, you know, for me, I always I love that, and I love the fact that you guys don't really have a, you know, there's there's beat up 2002s there. There's like some old stuff. There's um, there's a lot, and I think for me as an enthusiast, general, thir- you know. Air quote enthusiast with basically everything. Um, I always love that. Like when you when I was a kid, you go to Guitar Center, you look at the expensive mm-hmm. guitars on the wall, but they sell the entry level stuff. So for me, I think that's one of the things that's always been um, been cool being connected is that there's a, a huge spectrum of stuff. And and the guy you know wrenching on the Lamborghini is like rolling his eyes, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I just can't wait to get back to my project, like seventy four, you know roundy o2 or something like that whatever they're working well on. i think
1: that's a large part of what we've always tried to stay true to being you know kind of a teach their own shop whether you're coming in with a 328 and you're just mad at a dealer quote you know like 2800 dollars for an oil pan it's like well it's an x drive gotta pull the axles you know it's we can be fair and quote appropriately and save you some money just as a guy coming in with a e36 that's like hey man just do an alignment or tires, yeah. Yeah. you know, versus a guy coming in with a performante that wants HRER 101 lightweights. And, you know, the better part of an AMS twin turbo kids, $130,000, $160,000 setup. Um, you know, you have to treat each one of those people with the same respect, regardless mm-hmm. of the paycheck or the return of investment or the revenue or sometimes even the sexiness that each one of those brings in. You know, from a business aspect, you know, that twin turbo Lamborghini. Is, is a beautiful thing to do. Uh, at the same time, it's extremely marketable. Um, it's real sexy. If you're yeah, an enthusiast and you see a V10 go by and hear blow-off valves, then it's like... <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a large part of us that would just giggle. Even if you hate Lambos and you hate putting forced induction on the high-compression motor, which is not always a recipe for long-term reliability. Um, short-term fun. It's short-term fun. Those two people both need to be respected in a space that you're trying to create that um, is a more about trust in what you're going to do and the mm-hmm. expectation you set. You know, it's more about sometimes being honest with someone, being like, Kurt, dude, there's no way your F 82 is going to make 900 wheel safely and reliably. Could we get it there? Yeah. But is 710 wheel with a proper setup, good tuning, good fueling? Great parts going to rotate and do amazing things for you with a crank cabinet. in it. Um, yeah. You know, it's more about selling a realistic expectation. Um, and then it's not really a sales thing. It's yeah. more about like an exchange of goods and services amongst valued people that you trust. And I think from there, you start to build more of, instead of a customer base, <sighs> more of a demographic of like friends. Yeah. And people that are just kind of like a bunch of cousins coming into some place and like from all different aspects. And that's when we do kind of like well, we used to do more, but you know, when like the Impact Car Show comes around, you got people that coming up from Maryland, this guy's from the East Shore, he's into boats, this guy sells tequila, he's yeah. from the Northeast, he used to run car club. You know, like you get all these people to one place, and then like all of a sudden, it doesn't matter where you come from. It yeah. doesn't matter, like You know, I started from very humble beginnings. You know, it doesn't, literally none of it matters. Just you're all, you're just kind of like hanging out and having a good time. That's, I think that's what we all look forward to.
0: For sure. Now I'm going to, I'm going to go out of order because what I really, (laughs) uh, what I really want to ask, what what I'm going to ask is, is your journey to get there. But while we're still on the topic, I think one of the most important things that I, I think every entrepreneur who's even caught that, um, it feels like lightning in a bottle Mm -hmm. of the the big c word culture it's it feels like trying to hold water in your hands sometimes and um you know obviously a, a crazy car a, you know a Lamborghini performante comes in or a McLaren comes in it's probably very exciting but how do you keep um how do you keep your team how do you keep from that becoming mundane? Because everything eventually feels that way. You could be doing the same. There are Formula One drivers that like, can't wait to retire. There are musicians that play sold-out stadiums regularly that are like, ah, I can't wait to just go home and hang with my family. How do you keep that excitement day-to-day in what you do regardless of inventory, what's coming in?
1: I think at the end of the day, what keeps everyone together is more about not really necessarily a goal. Because like once you reach a goal, it's kind of like there's like this, you're almost falling off a cliff emotionally. It's like, oh, we succeeded or a dream. You do whatever you have to do to get the dream and then you have the dream. And then there's like a sense of like, oh, now what? Now what's next? You've moved the goalposts. Creating a a space that's more about driving towards being something and creating something continually. You can't help from if you're seeing 720s getting turbos in all day every day that you're going to get a little jaded when, you know, like – this E thirty six three twenty eight rolls in. and You're like, Ugh,
0: gotta do an oil change. Uh,
1: you know, do I still remember how to do this? Or you know something like an E ninety two with like one hundred and sixty thousand miles, rod bearings. You know, it's like we do so many of them. You can't help but get a little, you know, just a little jaded. I remember when I was on the line doing, you know, all of our superchargers and all of our rod bearings at a time when you know we had a different classification. I was our foreman. I was the one doing that. We had an off road division. You know, this guy, Jay Strohmeyer, was amazing tech. He was handling, like, Jeeps at the time. <laughs> Autocontore off-road was a thing. Um, and we had two understudies in between us two, both doing great work, um, but not classically trained mechanics. So, like, we couldn't have them do rod bearings and stuff like that. Uh, I'm going back, like, eight, yeah, nine years yeah. now. Um, you know, it was more about creating something that, you know, our kids would be proud of or our ancestors would be proud of. Some A place that, you know, was emblematic of, like, Honor, not about like just creating. Oh, we're gonna get, we're gonna make five hundred thousand dollars this year. Because I don't know if we're still there yet. You right. know, like, or we're going to be the largest independent in the country. Because we we did. That. It's like it's not it's not necessarily about summits or right. goals. It's more about continually creating something that kind of keeps that culture alive. And listen, there are some days that are you know that are rough. Yeah. You know that like you know from business, it's just like you can't live and die on the sunshine. You have to have something that is, you know, and what happens when that twin-turbo R8 throws a rod? Or that E92 has an oil starvation issue? Or there's a customer that's just showed up completely unrealistic about their expectations, even if you did everything you could, you know?
0: We never deal with that in real estate. Yeah, it never happens. (laughs)
1: People are never unrealistic. And I think a large part of that maybe now is entitlement about what people you know, believe they're getting or what other people are lying about, you know, in, in competition in business, you have people that, you know, will be dishonest about a lot of different things about what can happen. And then you look like you're the, you know, you know, you're the disingenuous person in the situation when you were just trying to be honest about what your expectations could be. Um, there are rough days and, you know, like I think being consistent as a leader. Um, in just how you address certain things, not flying off the rail, not yelling. If a tech breaks something, cool. Not great. But I think Jocko willing said it really well. It's a good arduousness and you know, adversity helps us build. And freaking out is not gonna solve anything. True. I remember maybe eight years ago, it's the last time I like really got loud. And I think like Matt had come into the shop just a, you know, it was back in Unit Six. We we're like completely old. I wasn't an owner. Yeah, I was just the foreman. You know, he had said something about a car, and I thought it was like he was like he was like being mean to like one of our understudies, and I like lost it. I like completely, and I was like I was ashamed of myself because I really valued Matt at that time. Mm-hmm. He'd only been working with us two years. Amazing photographer. Had really helped us capture some of the stuff that we were doing in the shop. Um, and like I, I like I lost it. And, like, even though the tech who I was backing up felt totally protected then by his foreman, I, you know, that wasn't the right thing to do. Hmm. As a man and a leader, that yeah, was I- I was a boy acting out of emotion. You know, and listen, you know, sometimes you regress a little bit when you've been working 90 hours in the heat and in a shop that doesn't have AC. And there's, there's a bunch of excuses you can throw at a situation. I think it's more about, you know, like, hey, you know, we eat. We effed up. Yeah. We made a huge mistake here. Here's how we don't do that in the future. Um, it's a little easier to do when you're much better capitalized. In the beginning, yeah. I think, you know, it's like, well, I'll just no. work tomorrow. And Stop the day after, for it. I won't pay myself. I'll work through the night. Yeah. And if my wife was here, she could tell you that, you know, like, you know, it was a huge strain on our relationship, the the origin point of Auditor Motoring, mm-hmm. because, it didn't, the salesman didn't need to work overnight. They didn't need to, the only thing they could do was get the work in the door. The only way we could solve problems financially was to get more of it done. We couldn't rush through it. Right. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that E60 supercharger tonight. And that'll leave me time to do the Brembos and Olens on the e- E90 tomorrow so I can start the VT2 kit on this car by Thursday. You know, that, that only works for so long. Yeah. Sustainability is a huge thing that you get. It's a lesson that gets taught very fast in a high labor based environment and I'm sure in many others. You know, you get you get pushed to the limit where like I'll just solve the problem. I'll just work 110 hours. Okay. But is that now the crutch that the business is surviving on? You know, that creates all new types of deficiencies in different avenues. So I think it's more about, you know, how do you evolve how you handle situations and how you Surround yourself and now eventually you delegate. Because I think all of us, as you know, kind of starting off entrepreneurs or business owners, you know, we know how to do everything, we know how to do everything right, but there's so much limited time. You have to learn how to start delegating and finding the right people to put on your team. And that's really where sometimes you get, you just get lucky. And sometimes the due diligence you put into onboarding really makes the difference in the long run. If you can build yeah. a culture, a, ah. I've used culture too much already. You know, if you can feel, build a group of like-minded individuals that are willing to have the same ideas about creation, about what you're trying to build, yeah. then delegation becomes a little bit easier. It's like, oh, here, guys, you handle all the sales. You And that, I think the hardest part for me was stepping out of the shop.
0: Yeah. Well, that's where you're, you're <laughs> rooted. Whole- that's where you cut your teeth. So there's sorry. I just like, no, 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 it's honestly, there's there's so much good stuff I wanted to take out of that. Um, (laughs) and like the thing for me, like obviously being, I've literally been a business owner my entire Mm -hmm. adult and even pre adult life. So everything you're saying is almost like it's, it's certainly canon for me, (laughs) but I think it's important to unpack that because it's easy enough for us to, to look, uh, look and, and gloss over and say, um, We know we've all been – every business owner has been in a scenario where they say, well, I can just do this. I can just fix this problem. I can, I can, I can, I can. And there's a point, like you said, obviously there's burnout. There's there's a whole lot of other things that come with it. But the hardest thing for I think everybody or almost everybody is stepping out of that need to do it. And everybody says – well, you need to step out of that to do it. But it's one thing to say it and it's another thing to actually deploy a plan of how you're not going to just do that job yourself. And the risk
1: associated with it. I yeah. think that's a huge part. It's fear and risk. You know, when you get down to that point, it's like if you know you can do X and Y, and you know they need to get done in order to get past this hurdle. Right. Handing that to someone else sometimes is like Dear God, that is, it's terrifying.
0: Yeah.
1: Also, from the aspect of burnout, you know, it's like Goggins says as well, it's like when you think you're done, you're not done. Yep. And I think there's a large part of people that get taught that um, there's a certain aspect that you can push yourself to. And it's like, it's okay to fail at a certain rate. And like, I think the the difference between, you know, David Goggins and the rest of the world, he's that ultra marathoner, yeah, yeah, XCO. I know exactly who exactly he is. He's an amazing human being. Um, is, like, we all have different levels. Like, we cannot go to his level. Right. And, like, Jocko and all these other guys, they're, like, they are our warrior class, and they're God blessed for it. Not all of us have that in it, but we do have a different gas tank that sometimes people are just not aware of. The problem is, like, when you burn that out, now what? Right. Now you've burned through, you've pushed past any barrier you thought you had, and you still have, you know, you still have 50 fucking cars to do. Yeah. And you're not. It's not. You're not over the hill. You, yeah. There's just you got over that hill, and there's another hill. Yeah. You know that, and that risk that's related around just learning how to. And sometimes it takes suffering. You know, it takes hitting a wall. It takes maybe going bankrupt. It takes maybe getting, you know, knocked down enough times to be like, oh man, I need, I need someone to help. Yeah. With doing invoicing, because I was never great at organization. I am organized chaos. I know where everything is, but no one can deploy that system. Right. I can deploy that system. And it's not scalable. It's not scalable. I mean, like, if you're artistic and you're in one office, it's fine. You can find everything. It's everywhere. It doesn't look great. People that come into my office now, they have, like, a mental – they have, like, a heart attack. (laughs) But it's the fact that like now I just act as like a bridge between two different aspects. I get to do my own stuff with my own clients, my own mm-hmm. customers, um, and I get to spend a lot of time doing racing and race and de- race engineering and development and helping, and more time doing customer service, which is what I love. Right. You know, talking people through problems, using everything I've known and built to like maybe talk someone off a ledge or maybe have them in the right direction. Mm. Maybe sometimes be the anti-salesman, like, do you need turbos? 26 pounds is 26 pounds. You know, it's more about efficiency rate at a certain range. And where does the budget really stand? Do you want to go racing? Do you not want to go racing? Is it just track days? Do you need this coiler? Do you need low speed dampening? Do you? Do you need low and high speed dampening? No, you don't. (laughs) Do you want it? Yeah, so do I. But I mean, like, do you want to deploy that? Yeah. Is that something you really need?
0: Be prepared to use it.
1: And that's also, I love getting, peeling down the way the Maybe we're all onions and ogres, at the, you know, as Shrek said. But, you know, can you tell I have young kids? You know? Can you tell? All of,
0: my, all of my references are currently limited to Bluey. That's my, <laughs> that's my current.
1: Um, but, you know, I love getting to know what people really want. Mm-hmm. And then helping them deploy it in a car, in a dream, in a build. Yeah. You know, we have a guy who's rebuilding his dad's, like, 71 Challenger. This is really important to him because he lost his dad. And I can relate to that. I lost a parent at a very young age. Um, so it's something that, like, you're just on this emotional journey together. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, what binds a lot of us to cars. Yeah. It's an emotional connection. It was a sound we heard. It was a feeling. It was a touch. It was, it was something magical that happened the yeah. first time you are in a manual car, and you just nailed the downshift. Like, you just nailed it. I remember it. You rev matched perfectly, and you did it. And, like, it just, everything was right. Yep. the balance was right the rpms was right the braking ahead of time was right just everything was right sometimes on a bike doing the same thing mm-hmm. it's just like it is such a connection getting goosebumps yeah. just thinking about it
0: I'm even thinking <laughs> as you're saying and then anybody listening would think about that with with something they're passionate about yeah. we, so you know we just bought a race car um, which we're not I, did, prepared, I saw that which we're not prepared to um, use to its fullest yet we bought an e36 BMW which was this is our fourth one. It Was mm-hmm. coincidentally the car we drove home from our wedding in, and learned how to drive stick. And
1: that's you know, a beautiful it's, thing. Yeah, it's in all in was, and of its own, right, that's just yeah. You, it's an amazing connection to have with Meg, also totally, totally, Sorry. and she's pumped. Yeah, she's pumped,
0: which is cool. Driver's seat on a slider, so we <laughs> can make up the difference. But um, you, you had touched on too um, when you were referencing David Goggins and people like that, um, which is a funny thing to do. But I, th- I think it's from a business perspective, it's important um you were uh, you were talking about like you know kind of getting over that threshold and knowing when to knowing when to like um, push through funny thing like i i've just had this realization with stress it wasn't like you, everybody the world always says well you need to offload stress you need to off you know you need to de-stress you need to do what you can to de-stress i'm like but like i, I, I realized that you've probably had the same realization at some point it's not that I need to de-stress. I just need to, my baseline of what stress is just needs to change because I can live with that stress. There's a lot of people live with a heck of a lot more stress than that. Mm-hmm. I just need to be able to manage that. It's the same with the risk tolerance and all that stuff yeah. too. Let's, let's pivot a little bit. I want to talk about-
1: <laughs> I feel like you um, go down every, uh, every possible <laughs> rabbit
0: hole. Um, I do want to talk about your passion stuff connected and outside and all that stuff. But Let's talk about a little bit about your journey to entrepreneurship. I think more entrepreneurs than not, more business owners than not, um, didn't necessarily set out to go on that path. So, um, how did you how did you get there? What was it? You were you you mentioned earlier, um, you know, master master BMW tech. So I assume that it may have started there, may have started earlier. What is it? What what is that? How does that journey begin?
1: Um. Uh, let's let's run through this as quickly as possible. Um, after high school, I was kind of on my own um, to make the previous four-year summary just go faster than it ever needed to be. I lost my mom when I was very young, unexpectedly to cancer, and then kind of had like a rough and tumble dips and valleys from there on until mm-hmm. all my friends left for college. And I was like, oh, crap. You know, like my support structure has gone. Worked a bunch of odd jobs and was like, ended up back in my paternal... Grandparents' home. My grandfather had been, he graduated from Casey Jones School of Aeronautics, World War II B 24 mechanic. My father, who I was estranged with at the time, but have since rekindled with, um, was with Volvo cars in North America most of his life. So I grew up around cars and around mechanical people. And my godfather, Galen Roy, was like, ran the warranty department and the service department at at Volvo as well. And they were all into bikes and like all this cool stuff. So I was around. Things that bumped, rock or was cool to me. Mm-hmm. We went to air shows. Just I was in, I was enveloped in everything mechanical. It's just I didn't know I wanted to do it. And my grandmother finally said to me, as I'm riding my bike from Hocus to Allendale to pump gas at 6:30 in the morning. It's terrible plan. I was such an idiot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was <laughs> 19 year old, you know, just. You know, just I could just do this. Um, she's like, well, what do you want to do? I want to go to Lincoln Tech. We can't afford it. She's like, well, I asked you what you wanted to do. I was like, well, I want to go to Lincoln Tech. And at the time, you know, as corny as it sounds, you know, that scene, Don Toretto from Fast and Furious, mm-hmm. if you can find a tool in this garage, if you can, you, whatever. I'm butchering that line. But there was something about, like, that garage was a, was a family environment. Mm-hmm. And that's what everyone came together to be a part of something that they were creating that was awesome. Not robbing shit and doing all this weird stuff that was rated around the car culture that, you know, that evil, yeah. you know, badass stuff. It was still kind of sexy, but, like, <laughs> I wanted to go to BMW Step program, um, graduate from BMW Step, um, and then rock out at the dealership. So, went to Lincoln Tech, worked a million hours a week to afford it, uh, which was great, you know. Um Got in at Harley Davidson while everyone else was taking jobs at R and S Strauss because I love bikes. My godfather was working for Harley Davidson. He's like, "I'll get you in sweeping floors, but the rest is on you." Um, and he used to come in every time when he was around. He'd go faster, 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 and it was like, "All right, you know, I get it. I'm moving as fast as I can, Galen. You know, but <laughs> the environment there was very interesting. Um, Harley Davidson at the time was run by Liz Janeiro, hmm. badass woman. Still had a lot of HA traffic, and she managed. You know, four different groups of people, and I looked at her as a twenty-year-old, and quite amazed at how she managed it. New and used vehicle sales, which are motorcycles, motor clothes, which was the highest-grossing part of the business, a huge parts department run by oh, clothes, motor clothes. Mm. Mm. Interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: And then I just started like started picking up things from business. I didn't realize it at the time, and then, of course, service parts of service. Um, and Jimmy Castor was like this amazing service manager that managed this entire line of epic mechanics. Epic, not because they were all amazing, but because of their personalities and what they brought to the table. It's was like, man, this is like really cool to create. This is just how it happened and how he managed it. Um, and then after graduating Lincoln Tech, got into BMW Step. That was BMW's very intensive training program. Graduated BMW Step, went to the dealership, park at BMW. Was there for quite some time until I finally was like, I don't agree with this business model. I had started two businesses on my own. We were fixing up um, and restoring Jeeps and off road stuff in my best friend's basement. We were doing some racing. Um, and then I'd started this other, like, kind of like cool research thing about acoustics because I was always a perpetual nerd. Interesting. You know, I just wanted to learn more about it. Um, I thought I could make like things fly and float by using sonics and. Acoustics and frequency stuff—it never worked. But like, I was just a perpetual nerd. That's cool, Um, you know. And then I was just this is this is just wrong. And if you look at the BMW book, it was you know you're constantly up against red tape. The cars were very well engineered, but from BMW's aspect down, you know, there was someone who wrote the book on what a flat rate unit is. In our world, we just called them fru's, and that's how the technicians were reimbursed for the work that they did. And sometimes it seemed totally fair, like ah, oh, cool. I'm getting like two four to do this, and everyone was paid by how much hours. And then there were some that there was just like, there's no, there's no effing way, you know. With every tool smashing things together, there was no way. And then they kept squeezing the noose a bit. What you were getting accommodated for, and then it was just like, I saw a customer come in with like an E38 7 series, it's a beautiful car. They'd had it for like ten years, and. The service rider would come up with a price quote that just seemed like wrong. Yeah. And I mean, like, I grew up in Allendale, but we were poor as shit. You know, like, yeah. you know, we stretched a salary as far as they could. My mom was, you know, did everything she could to try to keep my, I'm a twin, an identical twin. So there was like two crazy feeding frenzy lunatic <laughs> Italians eating, you know, drinking a gallon of milk a day. You know, we were, we were insatiable young kids. So I mean, like, um, yeah, you know, it just felt so wrong. It felt greedy. The whole model felt wrong. You know, like, these guys are making 150K while these guys are kicking their, you know, destroying themselves, trying to move as fast as possible for 75, 60, maybe 80, 90, as far as the techs are concerned, while service riders are walking around in the air conditioning making six figures. We're like, what is, this is so wrong. And the people were getting treated unfairly. Everyone was a number. did care about, like, Mr. and Mrs., you know, so and over. So, they, they were just rolled over to get the next one in. Rolled over. If there was a problem, never our fault, F you. Unless there was, like, some crazy smoking gun. No one was, like, really properly taken care of. And the price points were astronomical. It was all about this, this, like, evil empire of, like, money and revenue and money and revenue. And I was like, dude, this is fucking terrible. Yeah. At the same time, I was running those two businesses on the side um, I was like, I'm done. And we had been clashing heads for a while. I had run the warranty department there for a while. And I was just like, I'm it. We were just going in different directions. So I focused then on my, my other two businesses. And then I found out real fast that um, I had bought into this business that my two friends had started officially. That ah, was a mistake. Uh, and like, it was a good learning experience. But like three friends, all with three different ideas of what a business should do, three different goal sets, mindsets, and work habits, and maybe add in ethics in there as well. Um, That's just not a playing field for success or survivability. That lasted a very short period of time. And I was like, (laughs) crap. And then um, a guy I had known from BMW, um, an ex-salesman, had started his own little tiny shop in Hillsdale, 1,000-square-foot place. Just doing BMW mods. And I saw like on Facebook or something like that. Like they were just getting off the road. So now I at the time had a C5Z06. I was in crazy debt. I was in crazy car. You know I had all these parts lined up. I spent all my money on this. I had tool debt as a mechanic that gets oh. you in the cyclical thing of buying tools. I was
0: every time the truck shows up.
1: It's bad, you know, but you're buying what you need. I wasn't buried in debt, but I just I had a lot of debt overhead for a kid that was no longer making, you know, X amount after leaving BMW. So the first huge jumping off point in my career, I was just like, I'd found the girl that I wanted to marry and like, I hadn't told her yet. Um, I just showed up on Sal's doorstep. I was like, hey man, uh, you need a master mechanic? He's like, yeah. I was like, who's doing the installs? And he like showed me this young kid that was a Lincoln Tech and he shouldn't been working on cars. It was trying his best. He just wasn't he wasn't made to be a mechanic. And Sal, who was at the at the time, really good at doing like JB4s and like cool chips and stuff like that on 335s and the shop was just forum supported. So, 3 series forums and Beamer shop forums was just supported on forums. So, we had to be 100% on customer service. We had to give deals and had to do discounts for people and we had to like nail it. Because like every single car was an ad. For us and who we were, we were a startup.
0: And you and, do one car wrong, and it goes down. One M3, car wrong, and, and now,
1: like, dead. I was like, dude, bring yep. in everything. Yep. Do we do this? Do we do that? No, 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 we don't do that. I was like, bring in absolute everything. I can handle everything we can do. Let's. We we're just doing painted reflectors and some tape on wings. Now it's like, I want to do absolutely everything. Brakes, superchargers, I want to do absolutely everything. Turbos, get them in, you know. You know, do this exhausted. We can do four of them a day. And then it was like, how many springs can you do today? I was like, I don't know, dude. You line them up, and then I'll tell you. He's like, I don't know how we're going to pay you. I was like, I don't know how you can pay me either. But let's do this. Hmm. Um, he had a partner, Bart. We ended up taking on another partner a year later when the business model f- finally started to work. We moved out of Hillsdale, this 1,000-square-foot shop, moved into Unit 6 in Fairlawn. And then we were able to get, you know, because of our new partner, um, he put some money into the business. We took out a few loans. We re And we built what the first real vision of autocontore motoring was for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We just got an ESS supercharger contract for the East Coast. There's only three vendors, four vendors in the country. Give us a little bit of notoriety. If you wanted an E9X supercharger, you had to come to us if you wanted it done.
0: Parallel lives. I was in high school. (laughs) The younger brother of a guy I played guitar with had a blue (laughs) E90 and then ESS supercharged. And I think he crashed it, but... Um, his business is not too far from here and I'm still very good friends with him, but that was the first, that was the first, uh, integration Mike. Mike. And it was like, all of a sudden the shop has, I, love Mike. I wasn't even, and I wasn't <laughs> even into cars at that point, but it was like, uh, it's weird to be a name. So anyway, little, little aside.
1: um, and the next, next group, you know, is kind of like a more sad moment for Autocatori cause we, we were able to finally. I had hired a few people in the shop to help me out. We were able to spread our wings in the shop. We had four bays now. We only had one before, and then we spread our wings in the office. We hired three more salesmen. It was like awesome. We had, you know, um, a great office and a great shop, and you know, our trajectory was like this. And everyone was like, totally psyched. And then a large part of what was making the company work at that time was our CFO, Cameron. Um, he died in a brutal car accident on Route 17. And, uh, you know, it was right after we had moved and it was right after we had, like, he had, like, canonized the entire business side of the business. Sal knew sales. I knew service. But we, we didn't know anything about business. His father had taught him so much in business that he was, like, this huge jumping off point. This is how you do this. I'm like, I don't know. Sure. Let's do POs. What's a, what's a PO, Siege? And, like, he and I would go toe-to-toe on, like, what I knew and what he knew. And we were, we were kind of kindred souls at a point. Um, I built his car. You know, it was incredibly fast. He made a mistake going too quickly on Route, se- route 17, um, and he died. And it was a shock to all of us. Now, I had been accustomed. I had been, I shouldn't say accustomed to death, but I'd been initiated. I held my mother's hand when she died when I was 15, so I was not uninitiated to death. But this was brutal. Yeah. Because of all the people that he knew, his father we'd become extremely close with, how close he was Mm -hmm. to sell, how damaging that was to a business, and how everyone was just totally effed up. Yeah. We all had our own things to work through, but, like, the next three years were brutal. We made it. But one of the other partners was like, dude, buy me out. I'm done. So, so CJ's father took over his role. He tried helping out in bits, but, you know, it really was on you know, Sal and I to kind of keep the business going. Uh, Service was doing, you know, everything we could, but we had limited capabilities. Um, We weren't a very efficient shop, and though we learned a lot about it, they had given me a little bit of sweat equity in the business. um, When the opportunity in three years to move to our current facility in 8A was opening, started negotiations with that owner, um, organized and helped organize that transition from, six to eight. And we only moved like a hundred feet, but it was like the most brutal move ever. If we had moved anywhere else, I think it would have killed us all. Um, cause you don't realize how much stuff you put away, Oh yeah. um, in business. Um, and then from there, uh, Sal decided to go to the West coast. We kind of split up our operations hoping to, you know, East and West ACMs would work well. It didn't work out well. Um, mostly because it was, Really going back to what we started on, it was the people that had made Autocatour motoring so successful, not necessarily what we did in a different environment. Um, and California is brutal. People out there, you know, it's extremely vanity driven, and there's everyone will just do it for cheaper. It was a very difficult business to just walk into. There's entrenched businesses, there's illicit businesses, there's people doing business all over the place, um, and their initial investor had pulled out like right as they landed. Um, and I think after four years, I don't think, you know, anyone, I don't think Sal really wanted to do it anymore. So he traveled off in his own direction. I kind of took control over Audicator here on the East coast. And then what's great is about a year later, um, we got Matt and Alex back, you know, they had been on the West coast. We had lost them. They got them back. And then, um, families happened. You know, I started, uh, my wife was pregnant. Um, I wasn't able to do both being a shop foreman and CEO at the same time, and then it kind of forced me to take a real look at life. You know, I need to be there for my family. I need to provide for my family. But at the same time, you have pushed this well past the breaking point. Everyone said you were going to burn out. Mm -hmm. Um, You burned out. And then you put those ashes together and made something, made a tool out of it, and then started using that again. And that was not... You know, my back was gone. My wrists were gone. I was in motorsports at the time. I just, like, I wasn't going to make it much longer. And I couldn't pick my – my daughter was born, I couldn't pick her up out of her crib. Mm. And that was, that was my moment. I was like, dude, there are things that you're going to miss that you are going to regret. Yeah. Whatever time I have left here, if I die tomorrow, there are things that you're going to want to be around for um, and be able to do. And it took me even, like, another three years – of like slowly scaling back and rehiring um, to build Audicator's team to the point where it's like, you know, this has been the worst rabbit hole ever. <laughs> I love it. In my head, this was gonna be like 30 seconds. Um, and we just started our first of our major expansions, moving from 12,000 square feet to 18,000 square feet to give the sales their proper space and give services proper space. And it's kind of newly expanded role between the two places. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and just trying to set realistic expectations. I love it. That's our jam.
0: Oh, uh, there's so much. There's so much <laughs> I want to. I want to take out. No, it's uh, no, it's awesome. Um, there's a lot of things that, obviously, incredible story. I missed
1: a bunch of shit too.
0: I know that. Yeah. Well, it's it's never going. Please don't
1: judge me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to take away. Um, I will go from current backwards or somewhat current backwards. Um, Not totally current, but the biggest thing on my brain, um, your family forced you to create leverage. Do you feel like you are a better business owner because you're a parent? Or do you feel like that that change was the thing you needed in order to create?
1: I think we all get pushed in a direction until we push back. Um, And some of that push is designed, it's part of our psyche, it's part of maybe our habits, our natures, our addictions, our emotions, um, all the reasons we do what we do in life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would still be working 110 hours a week because there's a part of me that wants to do that, because there's a part of me that loves that creation and what I feel I'm sacrificing for my people. Uh, I think being a father is the ultimate reset in life. When they hand you that child, all of a sudden, you know, I think the reason I married my wife is the first person I found I love more than I truly love myself. Um, so I was like, she's going to stay, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Please, God, say yes. Please, God, say yes. <laughs> um, but when they put that baby in your arms, all of a sudden, it's, it's a different type of reset in life. Um, it's not that I love her any less, but now I love something with this whole other aspect of, I think of it sometimes in levels, right? So you go through your entire life and new experiences give you levels of like, that was my most joyous moment, you know, seeing the sunset and like Dave Matthews band play at this concert, you know, that was, that was pure joy or like this racetrack or this love affair or, you know, find this person that's all of a sudden that child now automatically resets, at least how I looked at it. All these new levels in life, joy, happiness, fear, adulation, intimidation. Um, and the first aspect I took from that was, like, I have to go even harder to protect and build an environment that can shield this person and create a possibility of some future for them.
0: Yeah. Legacy. You Legacy, talk, right? You talked about it right at the beginning. You talked about your work. There's so much—we I, I could, could talk for for hours— Um, you talked about your work in terms of legacy and you were, you were describing that thinking about that. It seemed prior to even parenthood. So it's, it's not surprising when all of those things put together, but most people don't think about legacy then at least not turning a wrench. You could be from a shop perspective. You could be just in a thousand foot shop, a thousand square foot shop doing, painted reflectors or you could be doing this massive 18,000 square foot enterprise that you've created, but you've, you've chosen that because of legacy and you're talking about your kids with legacy. I think that's so cool that they're, they're so interconnected for you.
1: Well, I think the first aspect is, you know, what you get taught. Like my grandfather was B-24 mechanic, right? So like B-24 is beautiful bombers, you know, split tail versions of the B-17s that everyone is a little more accustomed to. If he got like an aileron wrong, Like, 16 men fell out of the sky. And he always used to talk about when we were downstairs in the basement, like, when we were tinkering on, like, motors that would never run again because the man had lost his mechanical talents later in life. Sad to see. Um, There was a way of doing work and work ethic that he embodied that he had never forgotten, that my godfather helped reinforce, that my father and my mother, you know, by the time it came time to do work for myself, I had a lot of people I wanted to do work when I say wanted to do work. I wanted to make proud of my work. It's maybe a, not being super religious, I, I always felt that they were watching. Not in a creepy way, just yeah. like I wanted to make a shop that my grandfather would be proud of. I wanted to make a work ethic that my mother would be proud of. And then all of a sudden, they hand this child to you. And now you want to build something that, you know, make them proud of you. Mm-hmm. So, as legacy work, it's, works its way into defining how we do things, it can also push us in bad directions. My initial response was to go towards what I found the easiest, was to just kill myself, trying to drive business even further in the way that I had become accustomed to. Like, this is how I solve the problem. Mm-hmm. I could just outwork the problem. Uh, and life and your body and situations will eventually be created around you to remind you that you are not in control of this universe. Things will change, and you will not be able to control them. Um, and I think there's a large aspect to that that like, then forces you to either die as a business or to evolve. And that's that forced evolution. It's not like something that happens over millions of years. It's like the tearing down and rearmoring of muscle or metallurgy or alloy You know that like, will make it stronger if you do it right. Um, that kind of recreates the situation that also needs to be survivable yeah you need all of a sudden yeah you want to make this amazing thing so that they can have this place but you want to walk your daughter down the aisle yeah i i lost my mom when i was 15 like I, i there's all these things she missed you know i don't want to miss those things yeah and then like even coming home for dinner at 6 every night, that was something I failed at. As a, <laughs> as a man, as a father, as a husband, yep. I failed brutally at that. I also have an amazing wife that could do a tremendous amount. She's an educator. She does all these amazing things. So she's able to, you know, she was able to fill all these gaps and roles. Um, at the same time, it's also like if you're getting home at 7 o'clock and 7 o'clock's the kid's bedtime and you just you're just there to kiss them goodnight, you know that's not good enough. Yeah, and it's not going to be not good enough for, for the situation until you believe it's not good enough, and it takes time. Sometimes, and mm-hmm. I'm a slow fucking learner. Excuse my French. I don't yeah. know if I can curse. Can you I curse? Can.
0: Oh fuck yeah. The coming home thing is hard because you're you're thinking about you want to. I hate the grind word. I'm like so. I feel like grind is so played out. But you want to the natural instinct. You, you said uh, which I completely agree with the natural instinct. And, and my wife has pulled me back from this many times. It's like, oh, now I have mouths to feed. I got to work harder. But to your point, I mean, kissing them goodnight is not, it's not enough. That's not quality time. That's not what they remember you for. They'd rather you be there. They'd rather you.
1: De- and maybe it's our our way of learning and evolving as men. Because maybe that was enough 80 years ago. But it also created this gap between like, I didn't really know who my father was. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew him as this, this person, the this stoic, angry man that, yeah, you know, was full of you know, all these things. But I didn't really like really know him until my mom died. And then I was like, then he was totally fucked up by a situation that he had no control over. You know, that wasn't the real him either. Uh and then we got left. He left us in a house by ourselves as 17-year-olds. We got to know who we were then, but still, I was 28 until I like really got to know my dad. And that's only when I you know, I kind of, like, asked him to be a part of my life again. Um, kind of offered him that. Oh, I'll, I'll branch because he made some bad decisions over two years because he got totally fucked up by a situation. But, like, as men, you know, like, just being this hardened provider, we have a lot more to give.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't need to just be that. And it's not to say that the guys that are going out there doing 12, 14 hours because that's all they know how to do are bad. They're They're saints in my book. Yeah. You know, um, that maybe, you know, like they they don't have skill sets. They didn't have the education. They didn't have the opportunities. They're doing what they need to do for their families. I can find no better honor in this sure. world. But we have different opportunities. We can be more. And it would be like a disservice to all the people that don't have that capability to give up that opportunity. And that's how I kind of looked at it eventually. Mm. And, you know, being home for dinner is an important aspect. Being present is important. Even if, like, you're not a hyper-contributor, like, you know, being present. So I actually, the last two years, I kind of, like, reeled back the motorsport stuff because, like, the traveling, the IMSA season is 60, 70 days a year. And then you got travel days, bookending, each one of those. You spend a lot of time away. You miss, like, really important things. Yep. You know, and then it kind of, like, all right, well, Super Trofeo then turned really sexy because it's just five weekends a year and then an international race. It's like, okay, cool. This allows me to stay in touch yeah. without sacrificing the things and also, you know, bring a lot to the table as far as what I can still offer Autocotour Motoring you know, and what I can offer our brand and our people and then the experiences that like, we can bring them to a racetrack, bring them up to the Glen and like walk them through the paddock and introduce them to people and, those types of things. And like, maybe even eventually start a race team of our own. I think that's the, the end goal, maybe five years down the road. I always say it's five years away, but um, you know, setting up race cars, real race cars, not to say that like, you don't have a real race car,
0: but it's not, it's not a, but I mean, like it'd be pretty,
1: pretty fucking cool to see like that E36 on scales or waiting in line to get to the scales because there's a super Trofeo Evo two on them, you know, like, and that type of work also drastically increases what the guys can do. Mm. And, like, you see that on the, on the racing world. There are, there are techs that, like, they can scale and set down a car in, like, an hour. That's aligning, corner balancing, getting that car to, like, absolute perfection to rotate. And there are streetcar mechanics that would struggle to get a streetcar aligned on a machine with lasers that does all the work for you in two and a half hours. So there's a bridging of the gap between skill sets that I've always wanted to meld, and I think maybe that's where I want to push Autocatour Motoring is like filling in these gaps that you know will make us all gr- better mechanics. I say we—I'm not a mechanic anymore. I think maybe you'll always be a mechanic, but like now it's more about building for our people and also creating new environments for them, you know, and maybe bringing in some new some new blood. And like we also have to think about like what does Autocatour Motoring look like ten years from then. From, from now, I'll be almost 50. My foreman will be 50. Pete, my my go-to, he'll be 50. How long can we all do this? You know?
0: Yeah. You got to think about the future. Think about planning. Think everything about the hurts.
1: And I've been off the line for like, <laughs> you know, like everything hurts. I'm like maxing out on turmeric and ginger. Not
0: well, enough you can do.
1: It's just, and I'm not, you know. I'm not beating myself up in the same way the guys are. So I'm constantly looking at that situation. It's like, how do I lower their workload or increase, their, increase what we can build around them as far as tooling, crazy new stuff, and like almost a new age of auto couture motoring? Like we have some badass young kids, too, that are all under 30 that are doing great work. So like, how do we transition between the bridging of skills to oddly recreate the shop that I found at Bergen Harley Davidson in 2003.
0: That is the, I mean, that is a huge (laughs) component though.
1: (laughs) Weird 25 year circle.
0: Yeah. But, but that is, that is the, the, a a major component is figuring out how to create that, the, the correct synergy. This is business. This is music. This is a shop. This is whatever creating that it's a race team, (laughs) creating that synergy between um, youth and experience. Because you can't be an experienced youth and you can't be a youthful. You can be. You can try to be youthful and experienced.
1: But. And maybe there's some Renaissance people out there that yeah. are the exceptions to the rule. But if you have both those books open and you can, you can fold them together, you could create something that's quite sustainable. And even if it's not, even if it dies 15 years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I think of it as people as like, well, what are you going to do after autocontour motoring? Because you should treat every job like it's going to end sometime. Someone once told me, um, you know, kind of summarized that idea for me. It's like, well, what am I going to do when autocontour is over? You know, and do you treat it like a job though? It doesn't I, sound like it. I constantly treat it like it's my home. It's what I feel almost more invested in. It's not like my first kid, but like it's become so much more than a job for me that like I can find a way to continually do it. I would love to be bullshitting, doing just customer service there. As like old man Tremont used to do it, like this Tremont Harley Davidson dealership. Come down, I used to hear these stories this old guy that used to run a Harley Davidson dealership up in, I forget, upstate New York. I heard these stories when I was working on Bergen Harley where he would like take a brand new dresser out of the this is like guy in his 70s or 80s and like balance it on the front and rear brake. Bike's not moving. And just like every once in a while I'll show that like he was still about us. He still had a skill set and he still had time to talk to customers. Now I don't think I'm gonna come down from like mountaintop and like show someone how to torque a rod baron. It's like they know how to do that better than I do now. Um and faster and more efficiently. God, it used to take two days to do them. People used to bust my balls. Who decor takes forever when Tom used to do it. I was like, uh, yeah, the guys do it better. Guys do it better than I do it now by keeping in. I also would take way too long to do stuff, which also led to this like terrible martyrdom of like things getting done where it's like in in the world like I just didn't. I was a great technician um, when I guess the stars aligned. But I would find a way to try to bridge artistry and being a technician in the most inefficient way possible, which is bad for business. Yes, survivability. It's great for business notoriety. When someone gets something, they're like, "Dude, this is ridiculous." Yeah, it only dug me sixty hours, of which we could only charge you twenty, because charging you more than that would be dishonorable and dishonest, and that's what the business model is built on. So it's not. That's not a <laughs> recipe for survivability. That's a recipe for idiocracy or some sorts. But I would love to continue to talk to people about what makes this important to them, and be a bridge between two crazy uh, technological jumps. Basically, moving from you know hyper traditional fueling systems, mm-hmm. hyper efficient fueling systems to hybrid systems, and what the advancements of the internal combustion engine and hybrid autonomy will look like in the next fifteen to twenty years. You're still a creative. It's still you,
0: you I'm still crazy how do you bre- how, I don't how do you know about break that. out
1: of that though I mean
0: like I think everybody who has your your mentality that's the hardest that's the hardest thing it's like i i can't i can't not take sixty hours to do a twenty hour job because I know that it can be i know that the difference between like a uh, Ninety nine percent job and a hundred percent job. I don't want to. I don't want to say ninety nine percent is incomplete, but yeah. you know what I mean. Like, well, let's say ninety percent is the threshold of completion, mm-hmm. but you've you've just taken it to a, a an ridiculous nth degree. How do you? I mean, that's a hard thing to break out of. You're, you're a rare. <laughs> th- I mean, that's the that's the challenge. But
1: it is hard. But also, um, I think there's a time and a place for it during the building aspect of a business maybe it has to be 101%. Sure, because it's that's really you. If that's who you are, you know, that can build something. But the realistic and the honesty that you have to have with yourself that is that's not that can't sustain it. Mm. And to get people and be able to delegate whether it's, you know, mechanical engineering and you're designing something, someone that can get to something more efficiently is going to be which is great for designing this bridge. If you can understand that that scour needs to be done this way and that avenue, it's like amazing. You know, someone else would have taken soil samples for weeks and done this geological survey about this bedrock, and you used some LIDAR and figured it out much faster. And maybe it's just a little less awesome than it would have been before, but like that bridge is going to stand for 100 years and that's all it needs to do. Yeah. And kind of understanding. Not every customer is this crazy lunatic that appreciates. I used to take mm-hmm. the coolant hoses and wrap them in harness tape and thermal tape, so like they just wouldn't expand and contract. For the heat exchanger on an ESS supercharger, this is not needed. That's just a heater. Replace the co- just replace the hose. Also, you can't tell what that hose is aging. And I was like, oh, that also helps armor the hose. No hose ever got damaged. The hose got damaged if you put it in the wrong place. And 1% of the people, maybe 2% of the people appreciated it. And learning that like, hey man, they don't, you're doing this art for you. Some of these people do appreciate it and they do love it. But like understanding that like maybe you need to be realistic about what the customer wants, not what you want to do. Hmm. And like you do a disservice to the business to take it in a direction, in a non-profitable direction, if you're just doing what you want to do. And sometimes having that control as a business owner is really difficult because the buck always stops with you. That responsibility is important, but also there's no one above you telling you like, "Hey, Kurt, you know, like we can't do that. You need to find a better way to do this." It's not about you. Yeah. And there's a there's this time where you know, like, it's time to put down childish things and take up, you know, man, whether it's being a father, a business owner, and all that aspects. It's like. It can't be just you. It's got to be about the people that are part of your group and the people you're hoping and looking to serve. Um, And maybe that's that time at which, you know, you either sink or swim, if you can find that. Not everyone can find that. A lot of people just travel down that road, and the business fails, and they're like, oh, man, I don't know why. My brother got into a business, and, like, thinking it would be all gravy, putting this amazing amount of customer service behind industries trucking, and, like, no one cared. And, like, he didn't scale it in a way that would protect himself against these major companies he was dealing with. And then they, they just pushed him from W30s to W60s, W60 to W90. And then all of a sudden he couldn't capitalize from the interim. And, like, he wouldn't see the forest for the trees. And that's difficult. And yeah. I, I didn't see the forest for the trees until I got beaten out of my hands, my back, and, like, my life.
0: Yeah.
1: You know? And sometimes being honest with yourself is the hardest aspect about being a business owner. Because you can convince yourself of pretty much anything. You can convince yourself into this position, right? It's a beautiful place we are. You know, it didn't start, it didn't come to fruition because, like, you're easily convinced that, you know, it's not going to work. Right. You know, a large part of what makes us successful is um, is our confidence that, you know, we can find a way through this.
0: We can make it work.
1: We can make it work, or we can find people to help us make it work. Or there's some aspect in there that, like, you know, Failure is like just, it's not that we don't know what it is. We just <laughs> it's not easily found in our Rolodex. Yeah. Dating ourselves, Rolodexes. Yeah, um,
0: I use the term all the time. Uh, there's there. I, I we're gonna need to we're gonna need to have a second session. There's so much stuff I could extract. Part two. The parts there's there's so much stuff I could extract. Part I three. I totally appreciate how you've gone from you've used the creative. You have channeled your creativity into um, into philosophy, into heavy philosophy, that's allowed you to to make um, make strides away from a lot of natural pitfalls for business owners. Yeah. Um, I learned a ton from our conversation today. Um, what just to kind of land the plane? What are you doing right now that um, people should know about? Um, why you know they should go to you for certain things? What's like right on the doorstep? Um, and maybe sprinkle in, I know I, I heard the race team, but maybe sprinkle in a little bit of dreams uh, ahead of time.
1: Um, we just finished our first major expansion moving from 12,000 square feet in unit eight to uh, beautiful new office space and warehouse space immediately next door. We just finished cutting two doorways in between the two spaces, going from about 12,000 to 18,000 square feet. So customers now have... A beautiful sales office and a beautiful waiting room that can come hang out. And while the car's getting worked on, something we never really had, mm-hmm. um, we now have like close to a sterile place for all of our in-house PPF done by automotive specialty wraps. So they have like a five or six bay place, and we have expanded storage for our e-commerce business, which nice. has been an ever-expanding, ever-expanding aspect of the business. Um, and we'll be retooling the shop to match the new footprint as well. So we got a lot of expanded capabilities. I'm getting back into motorsports this year with NTE. Um, They run a very badass GT3 program in Lamborghini, um, and as well as Super Trofeo. So they'll be taking on hopefully six to seven, I've been told. Super Trofeo things get all crazy when it comes to fruition. So a decent amount of brand-new Super Trofeo Evo 2 cars, um, competing in Lamborghini Super Trofeo North America. Super cool. So after two years out, uh, you know, got to get back into it. Um, so hopefully auto couture and I can have some cool aspects in that range. Um, and looking towards the future, uh, you know, hopefully bringing on, you know, race cars in our own facility, either building, supplying, updating, or having our own race team. And eventually two or three years out, um, we have this idea of building our own Singer esque BMW. Ooh. So, using something badass like, let's say, a Carbon S65 just to make the greatest motor sounds and capability and live warranty, and like an iconic E9 chassis. Kind of like our own take on what Singer has done so well, but putting our own flair into it. Hmm. So, very cool. Maybe get a sales place to sell those too. <laughs> Five years, maybe.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I, I learned a ton. Um, I think this will be. A, I think there's a lot of great takeaways for the for the creative, for the business owner, um, even somebody within um, your industry too. To you know, you guys are a, are a standard for sure. Um, when I sold my F eighty the fact that it was served that I had any service records from ACM was a really good thing. <laughs> um, that's awesome. It's a great, great way to be, uh, be represented. So, uh, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it.
1: Appreciate it. Kurt. Yeah,
0: man.